0: Galatians chapter 3, please. Let's pray. Father, it is a joy. It's a joy to know that you are God and you are God alone. And that you have provided for our eternal redemption through Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd help us this morning. That we would revel in the gospel. And for anyone among us that does not know and believe the gospel, that even today they might embrace you through jesus christ and have life eternal for those of us that do know the gospel that have embraced the gospel that are related to you we ask that we would rejoice and recognize the security that is ours through christ and also to see that we are part of your glorious eternal family in jesus name amen most people like to belong There are not many people that like to sit off on the sidelines and uh, feel like a cast out. There should be places in our lives that we can go and feel safe and secure and like we are part of a family. Some homes are different than others, different priorities and different customs. But in many homes, and should be all, but in many homes there is a desire to make our home a peaceful, safe, desirable environment. We want our children to know that they're part of a warm family. We want them to know that they'll be welcomed and cared for. They may be rejected elsewhere. They may be unsafe elsewhere. They may be ridiculed elsewhere, but they'll never be rejected in our home. As we review um, Galatians 3, and when we're done reviewing a portion of Galatians chapter 3, the emphasis of our text this morning will be about our union through Jesus Christ, first of all with God, secondly with the universal church, all believers everywhere on earth, and finally with God's eternal family, we're part of that. The people of God from every generation were part of an eternal family. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you're a part of this family. You enjoy the benefits of being part of this family. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ, I invite you, if you trust Christ as your Savior, you'll recognize that in, in your place, He stood condemned. Because of your sin, He stood condemned. He willingly took your sin upon Him. He willingly paid the price for your sin, that you might have life. If you embrace Christ alone, we can say to you at the end of our time together, welcome to the family. Not my family, and even beyond our family, the greatest family, God's family. As we review through, I want to no, uh, point out a number of scripture passages. We're going to work our way through the chapter because we haven't been in Galatians 3 for a, a few weeks and I don't want us to lose the flow of this and really to see why verses 26 through 29 is related. So with that being said, both on the screen behind me and in your Bibles in front of you, uh, we want to, to run through Galatians chapter 3 in a number of verses. First of all, in verse 3, believers have begun in the Spirit. It says, Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? We've begun in the Spirit. Verse 5 tells us that the Spirit is supplied through faith. It says in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the obvious answer is through faith. So the Spirit by which we've begun or through whom we've begun is the one that is supplied Through faith. Verse 7, those of faith, it says, are the sons of Abraham, knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So now he takes us who have begun in the spirit, the spirit that we've received through faith, tells us that that comes through this gospel that was proclaimed beforehand through the, the person of Abraham, that God proclaimed to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth should be blessed. Those of faith are blessed along with uh, Abraham in verse 9. So through faith comes blessing. That's pretty obvious. So that first section of Galatians 3, we've begun in the Spirit, the Spirit supplied by faith, that faith results in becoming sons of Abraham, and it results in the blessing that is associated with Abraham. So faith results in blessing. As you look at the next section, verses 10 through 14, we recognize that the law results in cursing. So, we can't do all that the law requires. It says in verse 10, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. So, because we can't keep the law perfectly, because we are unable to perfectly fulfill the law, the law results in what? A curse. So, the curse results from the law. We can't keep the law. In verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. That's how, what he summarizes. The righteous shall live by faith because the law doesn't result in justification. The righteous live by faith. In verse 12, the law is not of faith. He's he's distinguishing law and faith. These are separate entities. In verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he accomplish this? By becoming a curse for us. Okay. Okay. Faith results in blessing. The law results in a curse. As as an intermittent portion of that section on the law, it says you shall live by faith because if you live by the law, you'll find yourself wanting, lacking. You will not fulfill it. And because of our inability to fulfill the law, God says, I have a a provision for you. Christ has redeemed you. The, The concept is to pay the price a ransom price. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law that we might uh, receive something. What is it that we'll receive? Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so again, he, he brings this point home that we've begun in the spirit. The spirit comes by faith. Faith unites us with the sons of Abraham that results in a blessing. And now he's telling us that the blessing that that is involved with Abraham involves giving us the Spirit of God. So we're we're going again. Faith results in what? Blessing. The law results in what? Cursing. Alright, so he's not finished though. In verses 15 through 18, he tells us that the promise of an eternal inheritance is based upon a covenant God made with Abraham. And you'll remember, when you picture that covenant back in the book of Genesis, that covenant gave great clarity that it was God who himself would ensure the covenant's full execution. God himself would ensure its full execution. How did he do that? Abraham, you're over there sleeping. And here I am. I'm going to walk through these parts. I will ensure that this takes place. All right. Well, what is the purpose of the law then? Before we get to that, as you look at verses 15 to 18 when he says that the law doesn't annul the promise, what he ultimately says is that the law has no bearing upon God's promise. The law has no bearing upon God's promise. It doesn't violate it. It doesn't void it. It doesn't change it. It doesn't manipulate it. It does no part with the promise. So then, if that's the case, what's the purpose of the law? What's the law's point? Well, that's what he tells us in the next few verses. First of all, in verse 19, the law reveals sin. The law reveals sin. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through the angels, or through angels, by an intermediary. The law reveals our inability to keep it. You know that, right? Like, your parents gave you rules when you were were a child. And, like, some of the times you would obey that. And maybe you'd get an attaboy for obeying the the rules. But did you obey every rule all the time in your household when you were growing up? Don't lie. Don't lie. You did not obey every rule all the time when you were growing up. It reveals something. It brings forth to the surface. It brings forth our sinfulness. It shows our inability. According to Romans chapter 5, the law actually multiplied our sinfulness. Look at what it says in Romans 5.20. It's on the screen behind me. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? The reality is the law came forth so that we would not ignorantly think that we were okay. If our standard of the law is weak, we might think ourselves to be fine. In fact, that's exactly what was going on if you remember Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Now, you know that the Pharisees are very fastidious about the law, but not fastidious enough. Because according to the Pharisees, Paul's testimony as a human being was that he was blameless concerning the law. You know what that means? We've taken the law and broken it down into component parts and said, well, if you're like this and this and this, you're okay. If you do this, that, and the other thing, you're not okay. You'll remember that Jesus had a rich young ruler come to him one time. You remember? What must I do to obtain eternal life? Well, love the Lord your God. Well, I do all that. Keep the commandments. Oh, ah, yeah, I've got all that down. Ah, ah, I see you have much. Since you love your neighbor as yourself, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. Now, wait a second. <laughs> Isn't that the full outworking of that law? See, one of our problems is we, we diminish the strength of the law. Well, the Bible upholds and magnifies the strength of the law and shows us our absolute inability to keep it. And with that, it, it brings forth guilt and condemnation. The law brought the awareness of our guilt. Verse 22, we're in Galatians 3, look at verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That's a strong statement, isn't it? First of all, the fact that it's imprisoned, locked up, everything, meaning everyone, under sin. No one is exempt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the law brings this to pass. It brings the reality that we are guilty and thus we are condemned. In verse 23, the law held us captive. It imprisoned us. This is now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned. So we're we're seeing the bondage that the law produces verse 24 the law was a guardian a guardian verse 24 so then the law was our guardian what does that mean it has the idea of a of, of someone who was brought in to train us not our parents someone that's being cared for or provided for to train us so that when we become full sons when we become come of age we know how a Clark acts. We know how uh, so-and-so acts. This family name, whatever that family name is, when you come to full age, this is how you act. You follow these principles. This is your guiding light. That's what the law did. Is it gave us a guide to say, this, when, when you are fully engaged and you demonstrate truthfulness rightly, it looks like this. That's what the law did. It shows us what righteousness is like. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. The law is good. All right, with that whole section, with that revelation of our sin and our inability, and we have this sense of guilt and an expectation of condemnation, so we thus look for what? Who will deliver me from this bondage of death? Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter 6? Who will deliver me, or chapter 7? Who will deliver me from this bondage of death? So we're looking for deliverance. Through these verses the same ones that are talking about what law did to imprison us, captivate us, to condemn us, to reveal our inability, through these same verses, though, uh, speaking about the law's role, we have a constant refrain of hope, grace, and gospel. Look at these texts in verse 19. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 22. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who, who believe, verse 23, um, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, the realization of our faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, it says, but now that faith has come, it's been revealed. The faith, the, the one of whom our faith reveals, Jesus Christ has come. We are no longer under a guardian. Instead, verse 26, all who have trusted Christ are sons. Look at what it says in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, I don't like the, the word order of the ESV. It is not clear, and it's not in accordance with the original. Better stated... For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's a better way to read that. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It gives us this very clear understanding. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, rather than being condemned, rather than being under a guardian, rather than still miring in the imprisonment of our sin we've been freed from all of this we've been made sons hallelujah this is the gospel this is good news so question ready are we son 176 trillion 897 billion 653 million 247000 is that your number? It's like, are you at a deli? And the guy says, number 17. Just like one of many sons, and he's just like uh, like a, an inanimate object almost. Last night, we went to Caserta Pizza. Sorry that I've been telling you this. Sorry I don't want to make you think about pizzeria the rest of the day. Uh, but we were there. And we, we went in. We had ordered ahead. And so we got there, and it was all ready. And we went over to a table, and we were eating. And everyone's sitting around, and you can hear a number and a number. And then John, your order is ready. And this guy over here, he was like a table right adjacent to us. He was, I think he may have been a few sheets to the wind already. But he started talking to this John saying, what are you special? All of us have numbers. How come come they're calling out your name? You must know someone back there. You know, you get this this idea of of the, the impersonal and the Hey, you know, Brian, are you son 8,713,000, you know, is is that how it works? Or are you an intimate son of God? And this text makes it very clear. We're not one of many, though it does also include that concept as we go a little further. But it starts off far more personal than that. And the way it does it is by talking about our union with Christ. He is the heir. He's the one to whom the promises were made. And because I'm in him, I also am an heir. I also am a son. And I am a very specific son. I have been grafted into Christ not impersonal very personal as we look at this it's an important concept he talks about something that can be very well misunderstood in verse 27 for as many of you as were baptized into christ have put on christ many will interpret this as water baptism let me ask you a question have you met anyone that has publicly done one of these baptism things and like, then they renounced Christ? Have you, have you seen of that? You have. Maybe someone's been baptized as a child. They, they were sprinkled or, or um, whatever the, the other, other ways that they go about it. And then they, they, later, they later renounce Christ. This text does not talk about water baptism, and many interpret it as if it were water baptism. There are two types of baptisms that the scripture talks about, at least two. There's water baptism, and there's spirit baptism. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ in verse 27? The term baptizo is the Greek term. It means to immerse. In, uh, take a look at Matthew chapter 3 for a moment. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at a number of verses of scripture. We're not going to go back to Galatians for a little while. Matthew chapter 3. The term baptizo can refer to water baptism. It can also refer to spirit baptism. Here in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist refers to baptism both ways. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, actually we're just going to read verse 11. We're cutting right into the context. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water based upon your repentance. For he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we have at least two baptisms here. He also talks about this baptism of fire. That's really a reference to judgment. But the, the two concepts of baptism that are, that are prominent in our New Testament Bibles is water baptism which is an outward display of an inward reality. We take people into, you know, underneath this floor, there's a baptismal tank, and we fill it with water. We try to make it warm, and we try to make it clear. Uh, Sometimes it's not warm, and sometimes it's not clear. It doesn't matter what color the water is, and it doesn't matter whether it's warm or cold. The process process of baptism is a demonstration. When we take someone in there, what we do is we... They give a testimony. We ask them a question. And then when when it's time to baptize them, we say, um, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll often make the statement, buried with him in baptism, raised in newness of life, because there's a picture that's going forth with water baptism. And that picture is, because I'm in Christ, I was with him in his death. And because I'm in Christ, I'm with him in his resurrection. It's, a, it's an external symbol to show forth what has happened inwardly. Water baptism shows that. Spirit baptism is something different. And I want for us to see a, a couple of texts of Scripture, three texts actually, about spirit baptism that will help us to understand it a bit more. First Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. While there's confusion about applying certain texts to water baptism that are about spirit baptism, additionally, there are churches that misunderstand what spirit baptism is. We need to understand these concepts. The Bible tells us what these things are about. What happens when someone is baptized by the Holy Spirit? These next three texts are going to tell us what happens when someone is baptized by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Listen carefully. For in or by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. He's talking about spirit baptism and what the spirit is doing. When when a person comes to know Christ as their Savior, lots of things take place. Their sins are removed forever. Jesus' righteousness is added forever. That person is then um, indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit. But something else takes place. God takes that person and places them into Christ, into the body of Christ. We become one with Christ from then on and forevermore. We are united together with him forever. Spirit baptism takes us from being Rob or Joe or Larry or Sarah or Mary, and it takes us and it places us into Christ. I have this intimate, eternal union with Jesus Christ. The Spirit places me into Christ. Follow a little further, please, at Romans chapter 6. One of the things that 1 Corinthians 12 also tells us, when we are placed into that body by the Spirit, when we are are Spirit-baptized, we are placed amongst a body of believers with a rich variety. In Romans chapter 6, we see this text of Scripture that's letting us know why we are united with other believers. Okay, okay, why is spirit baptism uniting us with other believers? Okay, in in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this. For what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried So, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, there's a lot going on in this text. The side note is, and it's an important note when we're baptized by the Spirit and the old man is crucified with Christ, we are no longer in bondage to sin. It no longer has mastery over us, it no longer is our ruler unless we give it that permission. But this text also tells us that when we were baptized by the Spirit into Christ, we're united to Christ. So let's take this, this very simple concept. If I'm in Christ and you are in Christ, are we now related? He's taken us from two distinct people and now we're related into this one union, this one person. Two people. United in Christ and now we're part of this larger body. Spirit baptism takes us from our own little world and our own little sphere and places us into Christ, which unites us with other believers. Okay, let's go a little bit further. Colossians chapter 2, please. Spirit baptism unites us with Jesus Christ. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His righteous record is our righteous record. This is the glory of being united together with Christ. Spirit baptism also unites us with all believers. I want to talk about one other benefit of spirit baptism, and then we'll start to figure out why there might be a problem if someone doesn't understand spirit baptism properly. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which we were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. One of the things that we have to understand is being united with Christ through baptism, is the most important event of our lives. Being united together with Christ through baptism is the most important event of our lives. Why? When we were united to Christ through baptism, our sins were forgiven. He made us alive. He made us part of God's family. He made us part of this family. So, who is Spirit-baptized? Who is Spirit-baptized? Some churches believe that there are believers who have not been Spirit-baptized. Okay, so let's, let's, let's review. If that were true, it's not. If it were true, there would be believers who have not been united to Christ, not been united to the church, not made alive, Not forgiven. What do we call that person? They're unsaved. They don't know Christ. You can't be a believer and not spirit baptized. Because spirit baptism takes us from Rob in my flesh and I will stand before God and give account to myself, uh, to God of my acts, to something entirely different. When I'm united together with Christ. When I stand before God, I will stand there not based upon Rob's righteousness which would result in eternal hell. I'll stand there robed in the righteousness of Christ. He's made me alive. The record of my debt has been canceled. Why? Because I've been placed in Christ. Listen, you can't say you're a believer and not have that union with Christ can't. It, it's, it, it's, not, it's not biblical. It, it's unbiblical. So, with that being said, as we look back and apply this back into our text in Galatians 3, take a look back there. Galatians chapter 3, in verse 27. We're going we're to stop there for just a moment. We're going to hold our place there. We're going to bounce off to one other text of Scripture. We are almost done. Fear not. Galatians 3, 27. Listen carefully. For as many as, or as many of you as, were baptized into Christ. Everyone who's been baptized into Christ. What does it say next? Have put on Christ. Not putting on Christ means to stand in our own righteousness. And that is a frightening thought. To put on Christ, I must be baptized in the Spirit. If I've been baptized in the Spirit, I have put on Christ from, a, from a, an eternal perspective, from a standing with God. I am right with God right now. Because I've put on Christ. How do I know? Because I've trusted Christ. And when you through faith, put when you through faith trust Christ, God says He makes you your, His Son. No longer under a guardian. And because I'm a son, I know the reason that I'm a son is because I've been baptized, united with Christ. Okay, with that being said, one more text and and then we'll come back here. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Listen carefully. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And so again, we have this this concept that because we've been united together with Christ, We have the Spirit in us. It comes, how does the Spirit come in Galatians chapter 3? Through faith. How did we begin? Through faith. What does faith result in? Blessing. Faith results in a blessing, and very specifically in verse 14, the result of that blessing is the Spirit dwelling in us. He unites us together as sons. We're sons of Abraham, in verse 8. And now in verse 26, we're sons of God. Look again in verse 26, back in Galatians 3. told you we were going to go right back. Verse 26 tells us how we are united to God, how we are united to God. It says in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. How does that take place? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So faith in Christ Jesus makes us sons. Verse 27 tells us why we are united together together with God. We've been united together with Christ who is the offspring to whom the promise was made. You can look back at verses 16 and 19 to to confirm that. We've been united together with Christ, who is the one to whom the promises were made. Verse 27, "For For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is why we're united together with God. Okay, now verse 28. Verse 28 tells us about our relationship with the universal church. The universal church is all believers who are alive right now. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So now he goes from this relationship of this individual. I've been united together with Christ. Now I'm a son of God. And then he broadens it out and he talks about another union that we have as a result of our our relationship with God, and that is a relationship with one another, with the church universal. And he makes some, some important statements. Because of our sonship, because our sonship is based upon union with Christ, our gender, race, and social status do not matter. That doesn't mean that we are no longer male or female. It doesn't mean that we are no longer Jew or Gentile. And it doesn't mean that we're no longer slave or free. Some people want to interpret this and say, well, see, there's no male and female, so you can be whatever you want to be. Like They try to take this text, and then they, they try to incorporate that. And then they also say, well, there's no gender roles because there's no male and female. That's not what this text is saying. If you want to understand it, remember that when Paul talked about a slave, if you've been born as a slave, if you come to Christ as a slave, continue to do what you need to do. If God sets you free, you're God's freedman. That's great, wonderful. But whatever relationship you come to Christ in is the relationship you stay in. So what he's talking about here is it doesn't matter what our race, gender, or social status is. Through faith in Christ, we are sons. Through faith in Christ, we are sons. We are family. You know, there's a lot, you know, you know, there's a lot of social unrest. There's a lot going on. Some is political. Much of it is other things. It should not be so among us. Someone can come in here. It doesn't matter if they're black or white, Asian or Egyptian, it doesn't make one bit of difference what their ethnicity is. Christ. Christ. Is Christ in you? Yes, we are united together. If he's not in you, listen, trust Christ. He can be in you. We'll be united together forever. Race relations, we should have no problems with that amongst God's people. Some people want to make an issue of it. There are places where there are issues there are people that are mistreated, and we don't, we don't say, eh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. It should never be true among God's people that there, there are racial tensions. We should always be for one another. Why? Listen, if that person knows Christ. They're in Christ, and Christ is in them. If I mistreat them with Christ in them, who am I really mistreating? Something's wrong with me. There should be none of this amongst us. So God has taken us from ourselves and he's united us together with him. This is beautiful. And then he's taken us from ourselves and he's united together with with the universal church. Not just the church body that's here, though that's a wonderful relationship. It it goes to every believer that's alive in this world. We are united together with them through Christ. And then he, he broadens it out even further in verse 29. Look what he says. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Listen, since we've been united to Christ, there is a relationship that has been established with all believers of all time. This is one of the great things about studying the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is to recognize that this, this, we're related to this in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and Ruth, First and Second Samuel, etc. You go right through all of these texts of scripture and you can see that God is saving a people for himself. That's what God does. He's still doing it today. And when we come to faith in Christ, we're united together with these people of all generations. There's only one way that entrance is allowed into God's kingdom. Believers before the cross are accepted Because God credits Jesus' righteousness to them. Believers after the cross are accepted because God credits Jesus' righteousness to them. Listen to the words of two commentators. First of all, James Montgomery Boyce. He writes, this last section of the chapter has been filled with references to Jesus Christ. He is mentioned six times And the point of each reference is that Christians receive all that is of value spiritually by virtue of their attachment to him. Everything we receive that is of spiritual value and virtue is because of our relationship and our attachment to Jesus. John Stott wrote, There is a three-dimensional attachment which we gain when we are in Christ in height, breadth, and length. It is an attachment to God who is a God above us. Next, it is an attachment in breadth, since in Christ we are united to all believers throughout the world. Thirdly, it is an attachment in length as we join the long, long line of believers throughout the course of time. Through Jesus Christ, we have been connected to the family of God. The question is, have you trusted Christ? Have you trusted Christ? If you've come to understand and believe that Jesus paid the full price of your sin and that He provides you with perfect righteousness to stand before a holy and a just God, you've been made a son. Welcome to the family. If, on the other hand, you don't know, what if you were to die today? What then? If you're not sure of your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're not sure about your eternal standing and whether your sins have been forever removed and Jesus righteousness is fully attributed to you and you will stand before God with great confidence. You can know today. You can know. Jesus his payment was full. His payment was full. If you trust Christ, all your sin is removed. All of his righteousness is added to your account. It's called justification. It comes through faith in Christ. And Galatians chapter 3 is all about faith in Christ. From beginning to end. He talks about lots and lots of things throughout the course of Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3. But the, the reality is we've begun in the Spirit. The reason that we have the Spirit is through faith in Christ. We become sons of God through faith in in Jesus Christ, it will rightly relate us to God. It will rightly relate us to one another. And it will relate us to all believers of all time. Brian read Ephesians chapter 1. I was talking with some ladies out in the hall about the, the, the coming Sunday school curriculum. And how, how you can look at that, that mural on the wall, that picture on the wall, and, and, and the timeline. And you think, yes, I'm part of this. I'm in this story. Look at how God has included us into to his people and how he's redeeming a people for, for himself. And, and one of the verses I said, yeah, I, I love Ephesians 1.10. And then Brian had us read it this morning. It says that at, at the end of all things, in the fullness of time, God will join together in one, all things in Christ. Folks, that day is coming. That day is coming when God will take people like us and unite us to people like Samson and David and Solomon and Abraham, flawed people like we are, and we'll all be in Christ worshiping God forever because God has made us part of this remnant, this group of people that he rescues out of the world. The question is, are you one of them? If you've trusted Christ, we can leave here with joy in our hearts and want to share the gospel with other people. If you have not trusted Christ, if you're not sure of your relationship with him, let me suggest to you when we're done and we sing our last song, we pray our last prayer, there'll be some people up in the front. We can show you from God's word how you can be a part of this family that will last forever. Never an outcast again. Always a safe place. Always a place of peace. Always a place to belong. Why? In Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all you've done. Help us that we would draw near to you. Work in the hearts of your people and of those who will be your people. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.